in a lost, desperate state, I killed a man in a dope deal that went horribly wrong. Um, criminal justice system would apprehend me, take me to trial on that, and I was given a life sentence for murder in 1992. Was remanded to the prison system. Everything I had come to really count on for life, my selfish life, my me-focused life, was stripped away. And I was sent to just a bizarre environment, bizarre culture of men that I found out were just like me. They were also perverse caricatures of manhood. Welcome to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Podcast. If you're an entrepreneur driven by your faith or want to be driven by your faith, then you're in the right place. The best way to stay connected is to sign up for our monthly newsletter at faithdrivenentrepreneur.org. This podcast doesn't exist without you, our community. One of the things that the community has asked us for is helping connecting them with like-minded faith-driven investors. We're in the process of launching Marketplace, a new platform to present your venture and connect with like-minded investors that are serious about honoring God as you are. Everything from philanthropic to market rate deals, from here in the U.S. to emerging markets. Check it out at faithdriveninvestor.org forward slash marketplace. While you're there, please send us any thoughts you have about how this podcast might better serve you or any questions you might have about being a faith-driven entrepreneur. Welcome back, everyone, to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm Rusty. Trust you're having a fantastic week. On today's episode of the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Podcast, we talk to Brian Kelly. Brian is the Chief Empowerment Officer of the Prison Entrepreneurship Program. In 1992... Brian was given a life sentence for murder. That was the beginning of his journey with the Prison Entrepreneurship Program, which connects the nation's top executives, entrepreneurs, and MBA students with convicted felons. Over 2,600 men have graduated from PEP since it launched in 2004. Brian is one of them. Among many other topics, we're going to discuss change versus transformation and why it matters. So welcome to the podcast, Brian Kelly, and thank you for telling us your story. Let's all listen. Welcome back to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm here in our virtual office suite with Rusty Roof. Rusty, greetings. Good morning, Henry. How are you today? I'm awesome. Thank you. How about that Purdue football team? You know, if you're number two in the country, watch out for us. If you're anybody else, doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, but that was one big game. And you know what? We're going to be talking about that game for the next 10 years if you're a Purdue fan. That's right. We do. And we're going to talk about Purdue football. That's all we football. got. It's all we got. <laughs> yeah. And you know, we're going to talk about Purdue football a little bit because otherwise we're talking about college football and William would be on and it just, it just drown, drown us out with all this Alabama talking. So uh, we're just going to pretend it's all about Carolina football and Purdue football on this. I am just back from Africa. I think over the course of the next couple of podcast episodes, I might share different things about it, but Rusty, I'll tell you the one thing that's interesting about the trip was that I show up to the airport. And you know me well enough to know that I'm lousy on email. I show up to the airport early and I'm looking at my email and I never show up to the airport early. That's definitely not something I do. But I thought, you know, I'm here early. Maybe I'll go back and I'll look and catch up on some of my email. One of those email that had been sent 10 days prior was important things before going to Africa. So I'm like, okay, I'll open that one. And Nicole, who runs our office, said, uh, you need to have a yellow fever test. You need to have a PCR test. And you need to have your visa for Kenya. And as I how sit at the airport, many, how, many, how many of those did you have? Let me guess. None. Zero. <laughs> I had none of them. I had none of them. And so I had to cancel the flight from San Jose to LA it was going to take me to Doha 
because I wouldn't have enough time to get a PCR test. I scramble, rebook through San Francisco, which leaves at the same time, gives me an hour and a half to get the PCR test. I get the PCR test. I arrive at the ticket booth to get my boarding pass. They're like, we can't give you a boarding pass because you don't have a visa. You can't get on the plane. So I had to go ahead and cancel that ticket, get another ticket to South Africa, which will allow me to get to Qatar, hoping that I get approved for the visa while I was in the air, which ended up happening. And I'm like, I just, I'm not going to do anything with yellow fever. I'm just going to take my chances. The woman at the Qatar Airways didn't ask for it. I get to Doha. Indeed, my visa has now been approved. I then cancel the flight I'd had to Cape Town. I then rebooked to Nairobi and they're like, well, you know, you need a QR code in order to get in the country. The health department website in Kenya was down and oh. it's going through. And they're like, you know, if you don't board your plane within 20 minutes, we can't cancel you. I'm looking to go 23 22. I get somebody in our Nairobi office to go ahead and figure that out for me. I get it. I sprint through the airport. If you're old enough, you know about OJ Simpson. Okay. <laughs> sprint through it. That was me. And if I didn't run, Rusty and I are both runners. If I hadn't been running like five days a week for the last couple of years, I would have missed the flight. I get the flight. When we're going from South, we're going from Nairobi to South Africa later on in the trip. Justin's there. They ask for the yellow fever. I grab, no lie, I grab my passport and my boarding pass and I just run to the gate. I'm like, I've got to get to South Africa because we've got this faith-driven investor conference with Triga and I got to get home. And so it ended up working out. I didn't need any of the three. Well, you know, I, I wasn't going to say anything because our listeners actually can't see you, but I thought it was just the light, but I do look, like see a little tinge of yellow. I mean, does yellow fever show up? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. It's kind of delayed, you know. You know, six or seven days after you get back, as I now have. Well, we'll share with our listeners more about this epic trip that Justin and I and so many of the rest of our team had to find out what God was doing with faith-driven entrepreneurs and faith-driven investors in Nairobi and in Cape Town. We'll do that later. But we've got a really special guest on today, and I don't want to keep him holding any longer than he has. Brian Kelly, thank you very, very much for joining us today, for talking to us about prison entrepreneur program pp and as we try to do of course with all guests we like to set the stage and love to hear your story you've got a very very interesting one that's different than most and while we want to talk about the incredible work that you guys are doing we want to hear about your personal story first so welcome to the program who are you and how'd you get here well henry rusty thank you so much for having me on it's, uh, it's an honor to be here I'm Brian Kelly, CEO of the Amazing Prison Entrepreneurship Program. We're a nonprofit in Texas that raises the banner of entrepreneurship uh, to foster transformation in Texas inmates. We've done that 17 years, and I've got a staff of about 30 people, volunteers that number in the low thousands, two, three thousand, about 3,000 graduates, and oh my gosh, every day is just an amazing adventure. I get to see transformation stories happen all around me, but I'm not only the CEO of the program, I am also a graduate of the program. Mm -hmm. uh, I went through the program in prison about seven years ago, seven, eight years ago, got out in 2014, having done nearly 22 years in prison. Oh my goodness. And so I'm not only helping to foster change, but that change has happened in me as well. You know, long story history there is you know, I grew up in a small town in Kansas. Uh, my dad took off when I was a little boy. I've never really known him, never had a solid male influence in my life. Uh, my mother, bless her heart, did the best she could to kind of you know, keep dinner on the table and a roof over our head and, you know, just basically high school diploma and no other real marketable skills. And so we struggled and I tried to figure out what being a man was by 
looking at my environment around me, what I garnered from TV and what I realized is the things that I pulled together were a perverse caricature of manhood. I thought a real man, um, you know, drank hard, cussed hard, worked hard, treated his women hard. You know, that's what I thought being a man was. And so that's what I grew up into and became. I moved to Dallas after a short stint at a Division II school. Actually, I uh, went to college on a track scholarship, but uh, I majored in partying and didn't go, to, didn't go to track practice. And, you know, who knew they expected you to do that? So I ended up in Dallas working construction for a few years, but it was really all about, you know, partying on the weekends. And I got caught up in the nightlife and the nightclubs. I was going to clubs with a lot of the Dallas Cowboys, like, you know, Tony, Tony Dorsett, Tutal Jones, and Harvey Martin, and some others. I thought... Mm arrived and I just, you know, I dove into that and there was a really strong cocaine scene going on at that time. And, mm. you know, I jumped in with both feet and, uh, you know, had some things going on in my life. About that time, somebody introduced me to smoking cocaine mm. and uh, my life fell apart in the course of about three or four months. I had, I'd lost everything I owned. I'd hocked it. I was about to lose my apartment. I was driving a terrible car and, and in a in a lost, desperate state, I killed a man in a dope deal that went horribly wrong. Um, criminal justice system would apprehend me, take me to trial on that, and I was given a life sentence for murder in 1992. Was remanded to the prison system. Everything I had come to really count on for life, my selfish life, my me-focused life, was stripped away. And I was sent to just a bizarre environment, a bizarre culture of men that I found out were just like me. They were also perverse caricatures of manhood who uh, demanded respect through violence and threats and things like that. And so, you know, the path that I chose in life, I was given in a fulsome way uh, in prison. Wow. Tell us more about the time in prison because we've come to understand a bit of the man you are today, uh, which looked very, 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 very different from the man that we might make a bunch of assumptions about from you know, watching the nightly news or something like that back in 1992. Mm-hmm. So there was a transition, there was a transformation. What was 22 years like behind bars? What happened? You know, the first prison that I was uh sent to was the largest prison in Texas. So it's the Beto unit, nearly 4,000 inmates. The demographics was 18 to 21. At 26, I was referred to as old school at that time. And, you know, golly, young, uh, angst-filled, too much energy. We were fighting over everything. They would fight over, you know, what TV shows to watch, who could sit on what bench, who could fight who. It was just bizarre. There was just way too much testosterone going on. And so I just... I jumped into that. I was in a riot on the rec yard. I didn't even know what started it. And it's just a bizarre, violent environment. And I kept thinking to myself, this is what my choices have led to. And uh, about a year into my incarceration, uh, just thinking, you know, my life is over. A friend of mine invited me to a prison ministry called Kairos, which you probably know is a Greek term for God's special time or God's appointed time. I never heard of it. I said, what's Kairos? And he said, well, for you, what it means is four days of home-cooked meals. And I said, well, sign me up because the food here is terrible. And so I went to that uh, that prison ministry, and the model of that is 42 
Christian man come in to have a four-day retreat with 42 hand-selected inmates. And we have talks and small group discussions and prayer and, you know, discussions about forgiveness and choices and things like that. And, you know, quite frankly, Henry, I'd never been around men like that before. They love, they encourage, they listen. Uh, it was it was so refreshing, but I didn't think they were real. I was poking and prodding and asking questions and saying, you know, where do men like you come from? I was intrigued, but skeptical. And uh, I bonded with a Lutheran preacher who went to Kansas University near where I grew up. And he won my trust just talking about hometown stuff. To that point, I had never admitted to anybody that I was guilty of my crime. I'd lied to everybody. I'd lied at trial, lied to my family. I even lied to my fellow inmates. And I just couldn't carry that darkness anymore being around those men of the light. So I told Keith, I said, hey, I need to tell you something. So we went off to the side and I just, I, you know, I puked it all out. And I, I told him everything about my crime, the details. And, and you know, I was just a blubbering mess. And, and he let me finish. And he looked at me and said, Brian, I am so incredibly honored that you would share that story with me first. That is huge. And I want to tell you something. I forgive you. I fell apart. I, I mean, I was a snotty, hitching mess. And uh, he let me pull it together. And he said, you know, Brian, although I forgive you, and that's true, you need to ask God to forgive you. And I, I promise you, he will. And I said, you know, Keith, yeah, I get that, but I can't. And he said, well, I understand. Why not? And I said, well, I don't deserve that. I don't deserve his forgiveness. I deserve this or worse. I get it. I'll take my medicine. And he looked at me and he actually laughed. And he said, wow, I didn't realize when I came here this weekend, I was going to meet somebody that was smarter than God. And I said, well, hold on, Keith. I didn't say that. He said, oh, sure you did. You said, you admitted God would forgive you if you ask him, but you know how to handle this better than he does. How has that played out in your life? And all of a sudden, I just realized that my very best thinking had led to a life sentence for murder. I may never get out. What do I know about a living? I, I'm a mess. I'm a part of the problem. I want to be a part of the solution. How do I do that? So I just handed it over to God that day. I, I said, God, here is the broken pieces of my life. I'm sorry that it's such a mess, but do with it what you will. And on that day, May 28, 1994, there was a change that was made. And uh, it didn't get me out of the consequences of my crime, but it certainly changed the trajectory of my future. I, I'm almost at a loss for words. I mean, the story is just so amazing. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and thank you so much for sharing it so authentically and openly with us and our listeners, because, you know, transformation is a hallmark of the Christian journey. And so many times we see that or we think we see it. But, you know, what you're explaining to us is a profound transformation. And so thank you for sharing it. I'm going to transition into the prison entrepreneurship program. So when and where did you get involved in that? Sure. Uh, so shortly after my transformation, my conversion, I dove into school. I would earn a degree, a bachelor's degree in psychology. I dove into recovery to learn to understand, you know, what were my triggers? What led me to be so dependent upon drugs and alcohol and chemical substances? I, I dove into church and the Bible. A man stepped up and would disciple me 
for 10 years straight. We lived together and we worked together. And every day we would talk about the fundamentals of Christianity coming out of the Bible and how we were applying that in our lives or failing to apply that in our lives. But there was authenticity. And we just worked that stuff out. Uh, he discipled me. And as I was discipled, I started to disciple others. So I was leading groups, small groups, prayer groups, Bible study groups, uh, just getting involved and started pouring out everything that was being poured into me. As I was doing that, more and more opportunities popped up. And there came a time when I was invited to be a peer educator, a leader, a shepherd inside a prison for the prison entrepreneurship program. And I actually transferred units to go do that. And it was amazing. I was pouring into men 50, 60, 70 at a time helping them work on their character, work on their business plan, think through different options and visions for their life. And I absolutely loved it. It was the perfect way for me to use my experience, my passions to really make a difference, even if I never got out of prison. And at that point, I didn't know if I would or not. And so I dearly loved it. And it's interesting that at the graduation of the very first class that I invested in, I was sitting over there amongst the staff, amongst difference makers in this world. And I was crying. And you know, it's an emotional moment anyway. But the reason I was weeping was because I had never been aligned with such incredible people making a difference for the kingdom. And I remember, uh, you know, crying out to God, say, God, I don't ever want to leave a company, your people making a difference like this. Thank you for inviting me into this. You know, please continue to surround me with people making a difference. I want to be a part of that number. That very night, I got shipped back to my old unit because I, we were about to switch units where we're going to host the program. And I couldn't go because I had too much time. And so everything I just landed in my hand, this jewel of PP was stripped away. And, oh, I was upset. I wrestled with God over that quite some time. And, and I just asked him, I said, why, why would you let me taste that and strip it away? I don't understand. That's cruel. And, you know, he must be looking at me, you know, outside of the bounds of time, looking at where I'm at now, saying, my son, if you would just wait on my timing, yeah, everything's going to be okay. In the fullness of time, you know, I, um, I actually swung a deal with parole. My 13th time up for parole, I had just cleared the 20-year mark. I'd been denied 12 times. And the parole commissioner was basically telling me I'd made parole. And he, he asked me at the end, he said, son, do you have any questions? I said, yes, sir, I've got one. Will you give me parole next year? Oh, my goodness. He said, excuse me, are you, are you asking me to stay in prison for another year? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, why? Why would you do that? And I said, well, I would like to go through the prison entrepreneurship program, but the only way I can do it is if you give me a hard release date for next year. Otherwise, I have too much time to go to that unit. And he just looked at me for the longest time. And finally, he said, let me look into this. Basically, he gave me exactly what I asked for. I bargained for an extra year in prison to go through the prison entrepreneurship program because I knew the value that I was going to get out of this. It was an investment in my future. Wow. That's an awesome story on so many different levels. So with hundreds and hundreds, I think this is probably podcast episode number 200 or something like that. Lots of entrepreneurial stories talking about seeing an opportunity in the marketplace, seeing a problem that's broken. And being able to be just be out and be able to test market, find product market fit. What's the entrepreneurial process like if you're in prison and you come up with an idea, but presumably you're somewhat limited in 
how you go about it. And yet I know enough about PEP to know that there've been quite a few successful entrepreneurial companies that have been birthed out of it. But what's that process like when you start off in prison? You know, Henry, you're right. We've had right at 600 businesses started by ex-felons after they've been released. And several of those, many of those had revenues or sales over a million dollars last year. But, you know, it really starts, and this goes back to our very genesis, we recognize that the men in prison, they can see themselves as an entrepreneur. They can't see themselves in corporate America because of the rigid policies written against, you know, felony convictions and things like that. But they can see themselves as a small business owner. And I'll tell you this, too, from their very survival on the street, the men in prison have natural business skills. They know about supply chains and risk management, profit margins, marketing, sales, reading people, recognizing opportunities. Now, I think that we would all agree that they have taken a negative advantage of opportunities in the past, but we need to just restructure that and teach them how to recognize positive opportunities that are going to benefit not just them, but the community at large. I mean, isn't that what a definition of an entrepreneur is? Somebody who recognizes gaps or problems and sees them as an opportunity, an opportunity to make money or an opportunity to make a difference. So that's what we do. But we recognize that character is the most important part. That's the platform. That's the foundation that we're going to build upon. And if we don't have character, it doesn't matter what you know about entrepreneurship. I tell the guys all the time, we can teach you how to run a million dollar business, but if you don't have the character to support it, it doesn't matter. You're going to crash and burn. So we start with character development. And quite frankly, that's the lion's share of what we do on the inside. We start with that. We get a common language. We give them some practice at doing some things like that. And then we begin instilling business acumen, knowledge, helping them form a business plan, thinking about what that's going to look like. We invite volunteers in to help shape what their plan is, make sure that it's viable, that it makes sense, that they're thinking through all those issues. And what we found is the guys are incredibly creative. They typically come up with delusional solutions, I think, at times. And so they need people who are clear-eyed, who have done this, who have started and led businesses to help them think through. It takes somebody with experience to teach somebody, look, this is just discipleship. You know, we are called to the workplace to be instruments of God. This is true discipleship without the Christianese. It's fascinating to me because as you're talking about these entrepreneurs in prison, you know, I think sometimes about, you know, in the cyber technology world where you'll get Apple or Google or Facebook going out and paying people to hack their systems because they know that they think in a different way. And so there is entrepreneurialism you know, residing there, it just needs to be shaped in the right direction. And so, you know, hats off to what you're doing inside of this prison ministry. You've shared your story with us. Are there particular stories coming out of PEP that are on your heart to share to us today? Oh my gosh, there's so many, it's hard to limit it. But, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, we recognized that, you know, we've got just some incredible transformation stories and incredible businessmen to share with the world. And so we hosted a showcase entrepreneur's shark tank, if you will, in Dallas, Texas at the George Bush Center on SMU campus. We highlighted three of our graduate entrepreneurs and they were pitching for about 250000 in growth capital. All of them had established businesses. Uh, well, I'll take that by one didn't. He was a startup. But the guy, I think, who won the show that night, who won $100,000 in growth capital, 
was just an amazing story. Ruben had went through PEP about eight or nine years previous. When he got out, he, he never had a job before. And he had no real marketable skills, but he had newfound character and he had some tools and a tool belt that he knew that he could apply. So he got a job out in West Texas in the oil field, recognizing that you know he could earn some quick cash and get on his feet as quickly as possible. So he went to work out there and his boss dearly loved him because he had that character, the work ethic. He had that loyalty. He was dependable and trustworthy and showed up and worked hard. One day they were out on a truck that was servicing an oil well and the truck broke down. So Ruben called up the shop, said, hey, you know, you need to come fix my truck. And I said, hey, we're backlogs. Give me five or six days. And so Ruben took the initiative, got on YouTube, figured out how to fix it himself, did so. And his boss said, oh, my gosh, you've got mechanical skills that uh, need to be developed. What if I get you some training? He said, man, I would love that. So they gave him some training. They moved him into the shop. He quickly moved up to shop foreman. And then the entrepreneur came out in him. He started recognizing gaps in the service business in the oil field. And he started his own business doing preventative maintenance to the trucks that go out and service the oil wells. First year, he did a million nine. Wow. 300 net. And that was without any marketing at all, just great customer service and a trustworthiness of providing great service of being willing to go out at two o'clock in the morning in 20 degree weather and fix a truck. And so he was pitching to us. He wanted to build a shop at that time. This is just pre-COVID, right? Just a few months before COVID hit. And uh, he won that hundred grand. He was thinking about building a shop. COVID hit and he pivoted in true entrepreneurial fashion. And he said, hey, there's an opportunity here to grow my business. And so he bought two other trucks instead and increased his fleet. And is now, I think I heard just uh, last week, he's looking at doing 4 million this year. Wow. Wow. Great story. Great story. Yeah. It, it also reminds me of so many times in the entrepreneurial world, we talk about grit, right? That people have to have grit. And I think about, you know, someone who spent time in prison, you know, and then making the transition back to society. And I mean, it's, it's about grit, right? I mean, you know, so there's a place where, you know, we have that evident, we have that evident. Before I um, transition into and segue to uh, talk a little bit more about transformation, how are you finding capital? Are these entrepreneurs having an opportunity that investors are showing up? You know, that's a really great question. And it's been super difficult over our 17-year history for our would-be entrepreneurs to find capital, especially startup capital. I mean, that's a that's a super risky asset class for banks anyway. But when you factor in that they're ex-felons, they probably have poor or no banking history. It's almost crazy for a bank to even consider that. We have discouraged in the past angel investors from our network of volunteers because I think that we just need to have some safeguards in place. And so our approach has always been for them to bootstrap, to get out and get a job and prove their worth and save some money and save the necessary $10,000, $50,000 to start their business. And we've done some crowdsource funding, but that has been spitting and sputtering at best. And so about a year and a half ago, we recognized we need to launch a lending arm and we've done so, it's called Entree Capital, and it's a second chance friendly lending arm. We pull in some social impact investors who have created a pool of money. Well, they recognize that we're gonna do a great job of vetting 
in underwriting these loans, making sure that they make sense, first of all, that what we're underwriting character, finance, everything like that. And we're pairing our guys with a business mentor to walk with him along the way. Uh, to date, we've had about 10 loans, uh, totaling about $300,000. Every one of those loans is performing perfectly. And the stories of transformation that are coming out of that are just incredible. A quick story just to highlight that. There's a guy right here in Houston who three or four years ago started a metal fencing business. You know, everything from chain link fences to the wrought iron spear point. And uh, he'd been doing about 250000 a year. And he came to us and he said, I want to borrow some money to get a used forklift. I need to be able to move more metal. That's my bottleneck. We did a deep dive scrub of his business plan and his finances. And we found out, hey, this guy's stand up. Uh, There's some places that need a little polish, but we can help with that. We assigned a business advisor to him and they did a rough scrub on his business model, making sure that he understood where his biggest margins were, where he should be prioritizing his time and his efforts. Next year, he did about a million and a half, 6X increase. And I promise you, it was not because of that forklift. It was because he is now surrounded by somebody who is in his business, making sure that he's thinking about optimizing his business. And so that's exactly what PEP brings is a army of volunteers to help you think through your business and how to do that more effectively. And how do you keep them spiritually grounded once graduated? You know, there's a spiritual component to PEP. Now, we don't require a profession of faith. We're not what I would call faith-based, but what we do is introduce what a successful, practical life of faith looks like. 70 to 80% of our volunteers are Christian. They go into prison, they invest in these men, men who can do really nothing for them. You know, it's because they have that heart to serve, to disciple. And so we institute in our character formation part what being an honorable, godly man looks like. We pray in and out, but we do not require a profession of faith. We don't require them to have any particular faith, but I encourage them to pursue and investigate faith because faith is not scared of any amount of investigation, right? And so I encourage them to find that out. And what they see at practice in our volunteers really resonates with them. It becomes faith that's caught, not necessarily taught. And so we follow through. We try to keep guys in community. After they get out, we've got a continuing education program. We've got community events that we want to include them on. And we're really focused on building our vision now of a post-release second chance incubator and accelerator. It will start in Houston, Texas, where we bring together our volunteers and our guys in a more impactful and intentional way. Matter of fact, we're calling it the PEP Collider because we want to foster more of those positive collisions. And when those two groups get together, it's amazing how God can work through that. Mm, That's great. We'll make sure that on the website, we post everything about PEP and Entree Capital. I mean, we have lots of listeners who are not only entrepreneurs, but also faith-driven investors. And, you know, I find a lot of times we begin to seek for social capital and we look sometimes overseas for microloans and different kind of lending vehicles. And, uh, you know, right here at home, you know, you've got an amazing ministry and an amazing program going on that I would imagine is piquing the interest of our listeners right now. So thank you for that. I'm going to transition because I know you like to talk about going beyond change. And I had used the word before transformation, your own personal transformation. And 
this whole conversation is just really should remind all of us of the Apostle Paul's, you know, phenomenal transformation, you know, probably the most dramatic story in the Bible of transformation. You know, a guy who goes from being a persecutor to a guy who, you know, probably helped cause the death of Christ followers to then turning around and spreading the gospel around the world. You know, what I find in it, probably all find fascinating is that Paul never stopped being a zealot, you know, even in the times that he was imprisoned, but the direction of his affection and his enthusiasm totally changed, right? He went from being this persecutor to being on the other side, a defender and a lifting up. Does this speak to the difference between surface change and deep transformation? You know, I think it absolutely does. And I think Paul's a great example. And I think uh, many of our guys are great examples of that too. I share with them quite often, you know, Ephesians 2.10, Paul said, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Our call to the workplace, our call for our hands to get dirty is just as high of a calling as being called to the pulpit. You know, we're we're called to impact our families and our community around us. And we spend most of our time at work. So we need to be prepared to do that. But uh, one of the things I remind them is that word for workmanship is in the Greek poema from which we get the word poem. We are God's poem written to the world. And, you know, every great poem, every great work of literature has a catastrophe overcome that turns into a great story. And so these guys are an excellent example of how God tells a great turnaround story. Poema, we also render masterpiece. and, And I remind them that, you know, we come to this opportunity as broken pieces, just like my life was, broken pieces. And God takes those broken pieces and turns them into a masterpiece. And that transformation goes on display for all to see. It's undeniable from our families, our community who knew us in the past. When we are not the same man that we used to be, we go from being vessels of dishonor to vessels of honor and light and love and life. We have that abundant life. It's undeniable. And everybody around us recognizes it and takes notice and wants to know, how do I get that? And so I just love it when those stories happen around me and, and it just it just mushrooms out, it dominoes. And that's exactly what the kingdom of God is supposed to be like. And is that, I know you talk about the inside outside strategy. Is that what that is? I, you know, it's inside outside in, in a couple of different ways. You know, we start inside a prison and we follow up on the outside, but it starts inside and radiates outside individually as well. And so there's on both fronts of that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, going back to the macro, there are a lot of prison programs out there that are just inside or they're just outside. And I really think it takes both. We plant seeds, we give them a tool belt on the inside that's going to prepare them for what they're going to encounter on the outside. But you've got to follow through and continue to walk that path. You know, discipleship means walking along with somebody. And it takes some time until we get to the place where we're independent, we can do that on our own, and we can become disciple makers. And so that's what we're trying to foster. We're taking men who have been vessels of dishonor, turning them into doting fathers, philanthropists, you know, even investors, and just you know, job creators, difference makers in our community. You know, I'm curious, Brian, is there institutional acceptance to this in our prison system? 
You know, there absolutely is. We've got a tremendous friend in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. They've been partners of ours for our 17-year existence. We actually operate, too, in a private prison. MTC is Management Training Corporation. Our great friends of ours, they have both institutions have bent over backwards to help foster change. And I'll give you a great story. One of our guys got out about a year ago, and uh, he had been in prison for 10 years, about three months out, a friend of his invited him to a trip in Cabo. He said, I knew you just got out of prison. Let me take you to Cabo and have some fun. And he went down there and met some folks and actually got a job while he was on vacation and didn't come back. He got a job running an art gallery. He had learned art while he was in prison. The guy recognized his character and his entrepreneurship, gave him a job leading an art gallery down there. And he also sells some of his own art through that art gallery. Well, the president of the private prison that we operate in heard that story and just happened to be going down to Cabo and he sought him out and found him. He said, uh, his name's TJ. He said, TJ, I just wanted to come see this for myself. I've heard stories about your transformation and what you're doing. And I wanted to see it with my own eyes. And TJ said, yeah, it's true. And he said, do you also sell your own art through here? And he goes, yes, sir. And the president of MTC said, and I'd like to buy a piece from you. He said, that's crazy. I've just sold out. He said, well, can I commission something from you? Wow. <laughs> what do you want? He said, I want a portrait. He goes, I'd love to do portraits. So, you know, portrait of who? And he said, I want a portrait of you. Uh. I want a picture of you to hang in my house and remind me that the men who are in my prisons all across this country can turn out to be just like you. Wow. Wow. That's an amazing story there. Awesome? And uh, yeah, we all should be having that portrait hanging in our houses. Hey, you know, it's just unique that we would have someone who has this kind of insight into uh, the topic that we're talking about. So I'm going to take us a little bit of a different direction. You know, not all individuals who come through the prison system and become paroled or serve their time become entrepreneurs, but they can become productive employees and workers. And I spent a lot of years in the human resource world and, you know, I look back and I think about, and I worked in manufacturing plants and sales organizations. And I think about the number of people who checked their application that they were a convicted felon or had committed a crime. And that application was discarded, mm -hmm. right? Because we couldn't look past that. We have entrepreneurs listening right now who have companies that are growing. Talk to us about giving the second chance to those who've served their time and are coming back into society. When I got out of prison after almost 22 years, I had never Googled anything, never sent an email, never used a debit card or a cell phone. I mean, my, the learning curve was straight up. And I applied at a sign shop for my very first interview because I'd done some graphic layout and some stuff in prison for about 12 years. And so I walked into this franchise sign shop and I hand the guy my resume and he looked at it briefly and he goes, you've got a lot of sign shop experience. And I said, can I can be completely honest with you? And he said, sure. And I said, I just got out of prison. And not only that for almost 22 years. And he sat down in his seat and he goes, wow, can I ask why? And I said, sure, murder. And he pulls his glasses off and he looks at me and he said, Brian, I've never had an interview like this. Mm. 
can I ask you how that happened? I said, yes, thank you for the opportunity. So I gave him a, a quick rundown of, you know, what my life was like, what happened, what it's like now, how I can add value to his company. And he just, he looked at me at the end and he said, Brian, I am so intrigued. This is the most captivating, intriguing interview I've ever been a part of. And I love seeing the transformation that's going on in you, but I'm struggling with the idea of having you come to work here, having been in prison for so long. And for that reason, can you talk to me about that? And I said, yeah, absolutely. Here's the deal is, you know, at that time I was 48 years old and I told him, I've got nothing. I said, I am going to be so focused on creating wealth for me to get ready for retirement. If I can do that, that I'll work every hour you throw my way. I promise you, you can't outwork me. Dare you to try. He kind of smirked and he said, OK, yeah, that's fair enough. And I said, but, you know, not only that, I'm a creature of a routine for my 22 years in prison. And so I'm going to be where I'm supposed to be and I'm going to be at work when I'm supposed to be here. I'm going to go home when I'm you know, not. And I'm comfortable in that routine. And then I started talking about, you know, some of the things that I had learned in prison that were going to be beneficial for him, especially the things that PP. And as I went through that list, and I think number one of that is loyalty to the person who gives a guy a chance when he gets out. And went through this whole list of things with this business owner. He looked at me and goes, you make me wonder why I haven't been hiring ex-felons all along. Amen. And so I think there are many employers out there right now who are struggling obtaining the labor that they need. And there is an untapped labor pool coming out of prison, but not everybody coming out of prison is ready because we've worked on character, because we've worked on some business acumen and skills. The men who are coming out of PP are vastly different than General Joe coming out of, of prison. So I think we've got some opportunities for employers out there. Absolutely. You know, we'll have to figure out a way to dig deeper into this topic because you're exactly right. We do have a labor shortage. That labor shortage doesn't look like it's going to go away anytime soon. We have entrepreneurs trying to figure out how to bring their businesses off the ground, struggling with that labor shortage. And we have a talent pool that we don't recognize or don't understand we should recognize. And so we all need some help in that. So we need to figure out a way to bring you back and dig deeper into that. And, and we'll talk about that for sure. So we have to bring this episode to a close, unfortunately, and typically our other co-host here, William, will ask this question. So I get the honor of asking it today since he's not with us. But we like to close every episode hearing about what God is teaching you right now, like in this moment, and also how we could be praying for you. So share with us, you know, does God God have a word on your heart or a word from the scripture that's uh, speaking to you right now? Oh my gosh, he's dealing with me right now with John 10, 10. The devil came to steal, kill, and destroy, but Christ came so that we might have life and have that more abundant. The reason I bring that up is I'm helping my church launch a Christ-based 12-step program called Regeneration. We actually launched last night. We had about 30 souls who were desperate for freedom from sin show up. And so we just said, hey, you know, I recognize I'm not saying any of you are not Christians. You're probably Christians who are carrying around chains and baggage. And we've got some, some keys that will unlock that. We want you to have 
have life, life more abundant. We want you to see authentic life like that. And some of us who have found some of that freedom, and we're going to do this together. It's always about discipleship. It's always about community. And we should not be people as Christians who are going around in misery and depression. And we are not ho-hum. We are filled with life and life more abundant. And that should show. Amen. And how can we be praying for you? You know, there, there's so many things, so many good things on my plate. I think I'm a victim sometimes of saying yes to too many things. And so I would just ask for clarity of God's purpose and, you know, doing things with my church, doing things with our guys. As a matter of fact, I'm taking 10 guys on a, a men's retreat this weekend. Yeah, I just pray that I continue to get filled so I can provide the overflow to all those around me. Amen. Well, let's do that right now. Lord, we just thank you for this episode with Brian and the gift that he has given us today. And Lord, we just ask you to bless him and he and his family and this. He has so many opportunities coming in front of him. I can feel it even as he expresses this need to be able to have clarity and wisdom about what to do and what not to do and how to spend his time. So we ask you to give him that. And Lord, we also lift up the PEP program. What an amazing gift you're giving to so many men and women inside of the prison system. And we just ask you to bless that ministry, keep it strong, and let those who are wanting to support it feel divinely appointed to come that way. We lift up all these things in your precious name, and we say that so. Amen. Brian Kelly, the man who decided he wanted to stay in prison for one extra year. And thank you for doing it because, you know, your ability to speak to us today and to lead an organization like PEP might have not happened had you not stayed in that extra year. So what a sacrifice that we're all benefiting from. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me on today. And like I said earlier, it's amazing what God can do with broken pieces. He can turn it into a masterpiece. And I'm not just talking about me. He does it everywhere. Thanks so much for joining us on today's show. We hope you enjoyed it. We are very grateful for the opportunity to serve you, the larger faith-driven entrepreneur community, and we want to stay connected. The best way for you to do that is to sign up for our monthly newsletter at faithdrivenentrepreneur.org. And while you're there, we want to hear from you. We derive great joy from interacting with many of you, and it's been very rewarding to see people come to the site and listen to the podcast now from more than over 100 countries. But it's even more important to us that you feel like this is your show and that you'll help make it something that best equips you on your entrepreneurial journey, one that you're proud of and one that you're going to share with others. Hey, this podcast wouldn't be possible without the help from many of our friends, executive producer Justin Foreman and program director Johnny Wills. Music is by Carl Kegwell. You can see and hear more of his work at summerdregs.com. Audio and editing by Richard Barley of Cornerstone Church in San Francisco. Mm-hmm.